Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. All right. So, uh, today we're going to talk about learning, speaking of learning. I just mentioned the learning class. Um, well, this course is called Human Evolutionary Psychology. Uh, psychology in general, we've talked about learning for a long time, and most of this stuff is done with non-humans, though the, you can apply the same ideas. So first off, we have to describe what learning is. Uh, my favorite definition is this one. Some event at time one influences behavior at time two. Uh, it isn't perfect. It's a pretty good definition, but it's not perfect. Uh, I can think of examples that aren't clearly are not learning or event at time one affected behavior at time two. I don't know. What about if I came up to you and hacked off your arm? Now you can't throw a baseball. Well, one event at time one affected behavior at time two, except that didn't affect your ability to learn about baseballs. Uh, all you've learned is that I'm a maniac who hacks people's arms off. But it's that sort of silly example. Really, that's a pretty nice version because we can think of classical conditioning here, right? CSUS, Pavlov dogs, saliva. We can think of Thorndike, if you remember Thorndike. Here we got cats, puzzle boxes, escape. That's good. Here we can think of Skinner, pigeon, pet, key, get food. So they're all event time one effects, behavior time two. So it's a pretty decent definition. It's a definition that was come up with by a guy named Bob Ruscorla. Ruscorla is a brilliant learning theorist um, who, along with almost everybody in that field, studying learning and comparative uh, cognition, comparative psychology, they all went to school together, which is really creepy. Like, all these really smart people all were in the same class, uh, including uh, Sarah Shuttleworth, who I talked about, my PhD supervisor, Robert Scorla, Peter Holland. It's really weird when they were all together in school. It must have been a very intimidating class to be in. Uh, so we can talk about classical opera conditioning. And again, just very briefly, I'm not going to get too into this. You should all know this from intro psych. But you know, classical conditioning is you got a CS and a US. They overlap at time. The CS is buzzer. The US is meat powder. It's not a bell. It's a buzzer. It was never a bell. Pavlov had no bell. He actually won a Nobel. <laughs> you see what I did there with that? I didn't even do that on purpose. Um, he had, well, he had a bell, but he didn't use it in his experiments. Uh, it was a buzzer, because it was an automatic, uh, automatic feeding machine. And it buzzed when it gave the animals food. And then he found out when the thing buzzed, the animals salivated already, because he was studying so, uh, uh, digestion and saliva. So, and he didn't go to But, the CS, the condition stimulus, that's the buzzer, elicits a CR, a condition response, that's salivation. Uh, conditioned, by the way, is a funny word. Uh, it makes complete sense to us now, but at the time it didn't. Um, Pavlov actually said conditional reflexes, not conditioned reflexes. And that makes a lot more sense. That the CS, or the CR rather, the, the salivation, is conditional, it's conditional like conditional probability, on this pairing of the uh, buzzer and meat powder. But it was mistranslated from Russian. 
and it was conditioned. And that's why we talk about conditioning nowadays. So, a little conditioning trivia for you there. Uh, operant conditioning is like Skinner, right? So that's where something is reinforced. So we tend to think of that being reward. So we tend to think, of course, of uh, give a dog a, a cookie when it comes in the house, right? You uh, tell a kid, good job, when they get an A, whatever. Um, so we tend to think of it as reward, but reinforcement simply just, and it makes the behavior more likely. Reinforcement just is something that makes behavior more likely. So technically, tests are reinforcers for studying behavior, because they make studying more likely. And they don't always feel good. Right? I know there was something wrong with me. I used to like writing tests in certain courses. I really like them in calculus exams. But I like it in some of them, right? You get that feeling before the test, you go, come on, coach, put me in and ask me a question. I know the answer. Let's go, let's go. I feel like that. I used to feel like that for I, I never want to write another test again in my life. You know, I've, I've written my tests, thanks. But I liked it in a way, but there's something wrong with me. Most people don't like writing tests. My hand get, I, my, I get, my hand gets sort of addressing an envelope. Because I've written it in the computer. So like I would address an envelope, but at the end, halfway through, it's like, oh, can I print this? I wonder. <laughs> oh my! God. I used to have the bump on my hand, like the writer's bump thing. It was, like, it was like I was rolling another, another spare head on my hand. And now, like, it's like I have a, I have a woman's hand. That's that's a joke, just for me. That's <laughs> from Blackadder. Anyway, so that's opera conditioning. That's the two major kinds, right? Um. Now, there was a big important idea, this Skinner talked about this, Watson, these guys, called equal potentiality, which is a great word. You drop that into a, into a sentence anytime you like. Makes you sound smart. Well, yes, of course, but there's equal potentiality. Um, what that means is that any, this is an opera conditioning idea, somewhat a classical, but there's more of an opera conditioning idea. This is the notion that any behavior can be reinforced and made more, therefore made more likely, okay? So, it's saying we could teach pigeons to play ping pong. Skinner did that, by the way, so. This guy thinking he'd do it in his spare time. He was not really a fun guy. Or, we could teach rats to instead of push a bar, which they usually do in these learning experiments, to push it with their nose like a pigeon pecking a key. That any behavior in any species can be reinforced, could be taught. An animal, any animal can learn anything, is what that's saying. Beyond the simplest, you know, with a hydra, you're not going to get to speak. Right? But any sort of more complicated animal. And this actually, well, was thought of for the longest time in, in learning as a, really an important thing. It's not true, but I'm just saying that people thought this for a very long time and clearly believed it, clearly thought it was an important thing. It so flies in the face of, of, of just... 
besides logic and you know evolutionary theory, just complete common sense. But that's what they thought. Um, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. Um, one of them is the theories all said that would be the case. So if I said that anything can be reinforced, that reinforcement is just something that makes the behavior more likely, it kind of implies that. Also, it fits nicely with nice, good old, leaning heart Western liberal ideas. And I'm not uh, making fun of leaning heart liberals. I am one. But it fits really nicely with that, doesn't it? Okay. With the right environment, anybody can be president. That's not true either. <laughs> By the way, I just thought I'd let you know. Um, so people have wondered what animal was smarter, for, in fact, for a long time. So what animal can learn more than what other animal? That's, that's been a big question. This is a question people have been asking. This is why Thorndike, you know what Thorndike is? Puzzle boxes, again, you guys learned that in intro. The reason Thorndike started doing this work with puzzle boxes was because he wanted to make, to rank order animals and intelligence. Which is an odd choice of things to do. But that's what he wanted to do. So it's a big, in fact, before Thorndike, people were asking these questions. Philosophers asked these questions. Which animal is the smartest? So people have been doing studies for years, uh, various experiments, etc., looking at things like the serial position effect or short-term versus long-term memory and things like rats and pigeons, right? You know the serial position effect? That's where I teach you something, a list of words, and you remember the first and the last words better than the middle words, right? Because if something's still in short-term memory, something's gone to long-term memory, the ones in the middle aren't there. Happens in people all the time. You know that? So people look for that in rats and pigeons. People talk about looking for, for, for short-term memory and long-term memory. Things that are things we talk about a lot in humans. People trying to teach animals language. I mean, one of the things that made equal potentiality fall down was when, when Skinner tried to explain uh, language learning is completely stimulus response. Which it can't be. It's too, besides the fact that it's specialized brain regions for dealing with language, um, which I think they knew by, you know, by the 50s. It's also the case that people, um, you don't have to be taught language. You have to be told something's right and wrong. You don't have to be reinforced for language. You just learn language. It just happens when you're little. Right? When you, before the age of, say, five or six, you can just learn a language. They throw you in any environment. You learn it. And you can learn it with, depending on um, the peers around you, with the right accent. Right? That's why you can see people whose parents are immigrants and their parents, and they may have lived here for 60 years, and they speak with a thick whatever accent, and the kids don't. Right? Or you can see people that are brought up. Um, my grandfather was brought up in Montreal, and, you know, bilingual part of Montreal, and you could never tell he was a, an anglophone or a francophone. He was just a phone. I hate that phone stuff. The Germans, they call themselves German phones. <laughs> Banana phone, you know, whatever. A raffy joke for a couple of you there. Um, but 
uh, Pierre Trudeau, well, Justin Trudeau is like that. Uh, if you hear him speak English, he doesn't. He just sounds like a guy who speaks English. Here, speaks French. He just sounds like a guy who speaks French, right? So when you're exposed to language. It just happens. You don't have to be taught that, right? You don't have to be reinforced. Sleep potentiality actually flies to the face. It's an interesting question. People say, "Well, which animal is the smartest?" It's kind of different than the potentiality idea, but they're both there. So people started doing this. And there is an implicit question being asked. Right? When you ask if rats and pigeons show serial position effects, you know, and the rats and pigeons um, have short-term and long-term memory. Whoops, that's wacky. <laughs> The question is, do rats do what humans do? Or can they? That's the question you're asking there. That, that, honestly, that's the question you're asking. Do you see that? You see what I'm saying? That Because if you're, zero position effect is something we found in humans, and then we say, I wonder if rats show it. Why should they? This is up there with, um, can we teach chimps American Sign Language? Maybe we can teach them to juggle as well. I don't see why it's interesting. It's a cool party trick. On the surface, though, it seems interesting. It almost seems a sensible question. Note what side of this I'm going to come down on. It almost seems sensible. And there are generalities about cognition and about memory and about learning. I am not going to deny that. You know, we show classical to not conditioning too, humans. So it's not like saying, are there commonalities is a bad thing. But remember what I said early on, the sort of standard social science model, one of the things it says is that there's only few learning mechanisms across all species. Right? Very few. And that's kind of what this is saying. So what's the basis for this question? The question of what can rats do, what people do? Well, if we're asking if rats can do what people do, is it not the case then that we think that we're the best of awesomeness? We're at the top of it. And we say, well, I wonder if these little shitty animals can do what we can do because we're better than them. We have them in cages after all. Uh, Ken Lenhodos wrote a great paper in 1969 um, a classic paper that if you ever do go on into comparative psychology, which almost certainly none of you will, um, chances are none of you will, you know, go on and get PhDs. Just maybe two, maybe five. Maybe all, y'all will, what the hell? <laughs> but very few people go into this service, especially uncommon sub areas like, say, comparative cognition, which is what I do. Um, you'll read this paper, though. It's a beautiful thing. Because these two guys totally trash comparative psychology as it was in the 70s, or late 60s, early 70s. Because they say, look, what are you saying? You're saying that humans, you're asking if rats can do what people do. Why? Well, you must think that everything looks up and wants to be just like us. 
Matt, yeah. Like when you were talking about how um, they're trying to rank order species on their intelligence. It's, yeah. Isn't it like kind of silly because, I mean. Yes. <laughs> it's, 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 each it's, animal is, yes. became what it was for the reason that they were adapting to their environment. I see you've taken some biology. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's, it's, 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 it's a stupid thing. It's a ridiculous so question. Saying something is smarter. Like comparing it to humans and that, like, I don't know, I think it's just so. Oh, are, are, is there special stuff about humans? Are we the smartest planet, thing on this planet? I will not dispute that. Right? There's nothing else on this planet asking that question. You know, there aren't chimps sitting around between bouts of, you know, masturbation and throwing their feces at each other saying, I wonder <laughs> if there's another species like this, like us thinking about this. <laughs> They aren't. We know they're not. Even with a language, they're not thinking about that. I can, I, I, do we know that? No. Would I be willing to bet all of everything in the world? Yes. Is there human exceptionalism? Yeah. Humans are an exceptional species. Our, our intelligence is so outstrips everything else. If you wanted to rank order them, yes, we win. Because when we can't find out where there are 30,000 seeds, where we've hid them six months later. However, we can just, you know, there's probably an app for that. So we can just design something to do the thinking for us. So is there something special about humans? Yes. But it's not. And that's because of our evolutionary history. That's because we, and we saw this, and we've been talking about this, of course we saw this in Walking with Cavemen, etc. There there's something special about us. Right? Let's go do that again. <laughs> um, but there isn't a top or a goal. Whoa, and the font changed. This is a really strange presentation. Um, the idea is just simply wrong. There's no goal to evolution. There's no top of a ladder. Evolution has no goal. It just is. It's like saying there's a goal to gravity. Everything's trying to get sucked out of the earth. Here's a better question, and I think a more interesting question. Um, what has driven some species to be able to solve a certain kind of problem? <coughs> So is there human exceptionalism? Yeah, because there are things that just nothing else can do, and there's so many of them that nothing else can do, that you could say that there's something exceptional about humans. But when you, the question is, why are we like that? Right? Or why is it that a Clark's cracker can recover 25,000 seeds of the 30,000 that's stored in a 40 kilometer radius six months later? That's a good question. What selective pressures then um, have led to the evolution of certain learning mechanisms, certain cognitive mechanisms? That's the question that's cool and fun. Okay. So asking what question, asking what species is smartest is kind of a silly question. <laughs> yeah, it's like. Oh my god, I can't believe it. Like, I didn't even know that as I've been planning. It. Awesome. It's like, no. Oh dear.
Oh, yeah, that um, actually said that that webway is dead now. I was checking there. Uh, this is when I was asked a question by the Discovery Network. Discovery Channel? They asked me a question. They, you know, they do that now and then. I don't know if they do it anymore. Uh, I stopped watching it, but it's not being on science and it was more about. Except for the Mythbusters, which I love. Uh, most of the Discovery Channel is just things about. It's like they're all the same channel now. Right? It's all just really just about ice road truckers and pawn stars. So it's, 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 you know, the History Channel's not about history. But they used to do this thing called You Asked For It, and they would, um, people would write in or, or, or call in questions, and someone would go in, what's the smartest animal? And they asked me, I don't know where they got my name. Well, I think I do, because I was on, I'm still on this list on the internet of people that study comparison cognition, and my name starts with a B. So they got the top of the list, and they went, oh, Canadian, call him. Um, and they asked me what was the smartest animal. And they said, because we talked to a biologist who said it was a pig. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's, uh, that's an answer. He said, it's kind of a silly question. I said, Clark's Nutcracker. I mentioned Clark's Nutcracker. I said, but remember, um, I've never seen a Clark's Nutcracker build a civilization. Um, it's very, it's, it's, their behavior is very impressive, but there's stuff that every species can do its own. I gave it really, you know, they wanted to know what the smartest animal was, and I said, it's really not a very good question, basically. Uh, it's a shame that's that, 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 doing this again. There is something, it's because of the snow outside. I think that's what's doing this. So we have to compare. If we're going to find out about learning differences, which is sort of the thing we'd be interested in in a class like this, we have to compare species. So we have to compare species and say which one does better. That's the question we would ask. Um, how do we know that any difference we find in cognitive ability, any difference we find in learning, isn't due to motivation? Like, okay, so let's say we compare uh, uh, pigeons and rats on, what's a good learning phenomenon? Oh, well, here's a good one. Here's a classic thing you'll use in animal sort of learning stuff. You show you got an animal has like three lights, okay? And then you show it. So you light up one of the lights, let's say the middle one, and the animal responds to that light, and then they go dark. So the retention interval, let's say of five seconds, you give it the choice of all three lights, and when it pecks the right light or pushes it, like the bar underneath it, if you want to use rats, then it gets food. That's, a, that's a, a paradigm called delayed matching with sample, EMTS. Okay. So that's something you can use that. That's a way to, to test animal memory, animal learning. It's great. Um, and we compare, let's say, rats and pigeons. So we do that, and we find out that, I don't know, rats are better than pigeons. Now, the question is, how do we know that that wasn't due to motivation, right? Because think about this. I've given the rat uh, two noise pellets. Uh, the noise actually is a, it's a, it's a company, by the way, N-O-Y-E-S. When I say noise pellets, it's not, they're not loud. It's, that's a company. It's, they make rat pellets. They're 45 milligrams, little pieces of rat food. With the pigeon, I'm going to give it 45 seconds. Oh, 45. I'm going to give it a pigeon uh, five seconds of access to grain. So a little hopper opens up and it can pet it. That's the grain. Now, how do I know that? Five seconds of access to, the, to grain is, is equal in motivational value to, to, to two 45 milligram noise pellets. It's actually on the surface a good question, isn't it? So maybe the pigeon's more motivated than the rat. 
get a, instead of pigeon weighs maybe 500 grams. You know, they do it annually. A rat might weigh 200 million, 200 grams. Milligrams, be a small rat. 200 grams. So, and also, are noise pellets as tasty to rats as mixed grain is to pigeons? Right? I don't know. It's a good question. So, how do we know it's not due to a difference in motivation? It's a festival of some sort. <laughs> um, okay, so this guy, Bitterman, uh, who uh, is in Hawaii somewhere, he had this idea what you want to do is test, if you're going to compare species, you keep varying these amounts of the food, let's say. It's usually about food. And also varying amount of how much they're uh, deprived. When you do these animal experiments, you deprive the animals. So you make sure the rats haven't eaten. You keep them 85% of their normal feeding weight, normal body weight. You do the same thing with the pigeons, but 85%. Because, you know, they'll work for food, basically, right? Um, they're they're going to be more motivated. Then you think to yourself, wait a second, how do I know 85% for a pigeon is the same as 85% for a rat? Well, you want to vary that, too. So, you do those things. Then you walk by people's classrooms talking loudly, because that's funny. Two times this week. Two times this week. Yesterday, I got mad at two of my colleagues for doing it. So, uh, not in my department, I will say that. Because it was my department, I would, I would have pulled them into the classroom and we would have done a bit of some sort of response. <laughs> you know, or if it was Dwayne, he wouldn't know what to do and I'd just make fun of him. <laughs> I wouldn't do it with Cheryl because she kind of scares me. <laughs> and Lori, Lori frightens the hell out of me. She's a tough guy. Um, <laughs> she knows I say that. It's completely understand that. We're all friends. But no, it's two people who live in my apartment. It's like, upstairs, you know, it's like the photo, you know, the photocopy room is, and uh, all our mailboxes are from the across. So that's the classroom I was in. And then there's two guys, like, you know, two colleagues of my study, and they're talking like, what? I got really, I didn't. I walked up and I went, yeah, and anyway, I slammed the door. <laughs> all right, so Bitterman's idea is you, you, you vary these things. That sounds all good. Um, Bitterman also said that there were different kinds of learning. He said there was rat-like learning and bird-like learning and reptile-like learning and fish-type learning, and then he rank-ordered them. He said he didn't do that, but you can read it. And he said he said it. <laughs> like he, it's funny. He wrote a paper in Science, like it's not a shitty journal, but he talked about these different kinds of this, like that, like, and clearly rat like was the best. Well, they're mammals after all. And I mean, it's in the paper. And then he was criticized in the Hudson Campbell paper, the one I talked about, like in '69. And then he comes back and says, "Well, I saw what I meant." I said, well, dude, but that's what you said. So, but the idea of this, you know, changing, that's not bad. Again, on the surface. So, you and McPhail, you and McPhail, it talks like this, you and McPhail. I'm pretty sure that I've only ever seen emails from you, and I think he probably talks like this because it's Scottish. 
Yeah, I'm ready. I just have a question about the bitterly. Yeah. So he was just saying to vary the amount of food? Vary the amount and the motivation. Uh, like motiva like the sort of like how, how hungry they are. Okay. Yeah. And the kind of food maybe too. Yeah, please. But even if you're varying them, how do you know when they are gonna equal up between two species? You can't, no. you that's can't part figure of the, out yeah. That's exactly that's part of the problem. Yeah, you would never know when they were equal. Because you, can, you, can't, you can't how would they be equal? And that's part of the problem. Though Bitterman says that eventually after many period you're doing this a lot of times, you see a pattern. It's not a point, right. but I think your point's a bigger point. That you really can't know. No. You know, it's like is that light so much brighter than that noise is loud? It's like blowing it's my mind. Like seeing, like, do I see green the same way you see green? It's exactly that kind like, of question. It just doesn't. Dude. You can't know. Yeah. No, you can't. Exactly. It's it's an unknowable question. Yeah. He, it's only he tried to get around it. That a lot of people accepted for a very long time. Uh, McPhail talked a lot about this, um, and McPhail said in a paper this back in the eighties that. Um, in science, we start with the null hypothesis, right? That there's nothing happens, that there's no effect. You've all taken, or, or are taking, or if you haven't, but you all understand that in statistics, we say nothing happened. That's the, the null hypothesis. And he said, in our case, there's no, the, the, the question, the, the null hypothesis is there's no difference between two species. That is no difference between two species. Again, I think he talks like that. I've never really talked. I mean, I've emailed back and forth with him. Somewhat snarkily. <laughs> I've uh, never actually ever talked. But you and McPhail, sounds pretty Scottish to me. Now, you got to remember the motivation thing, though. Remember that. Remember what Bitterman said. So any difference you find might be a motivational problem. It might not be that the two species differ. It might actually be they just uh, in, in, in learning ability. What they actually differ is in. Um, it was a, it's all caused by motivation. Okay. That's McPhail, and a lot of people like this idea. Um, but not him. <laughs> That's Al Campbell. That's, uh, it's Al Campbell. He uh, actually talks a great deal like this. This is an excellent Al Campbell impression, but uh, you know you can't take this on the road because no one knows. If you do impressions of various uh, compared to psychologists, you can't take that to Vegas. But it's a good impression. It really is. He's holding the Clark's Nutcracker, by the way. Okay, and now notice the flaw in this. This is the paper, by the way, that I'm going to talk about right now. Was given to me the day I started graduate school. Okay, this is this. It, it, I was told to read this. Well, probably the day I started. The day, the first day I went and left. Okay, what Al says is, you set up an hypothesis you cannot reject. It's a logical flaw, right? Because if you say the null hypothesis is there's no difference between two species, true, I'm with you so far. But then you say, then I find a difference, you say, it's not real, it must be caused by motivation. In other words, it is impossible to reject the null that you set up. You, you've made, 
you do, you do, it's illogical. What Mufail is saying is impossible. It makes, makes science stop. Because if I always have an alternative explanation, I should just quit. And I can't fix it with, with design. Those of you taking 2127 know you fix alternative explanations with good design. But McVeigh's like, you can't fix it. Could always be motivation. Humans are smartest, they win, na na na. It's not actually what he said, but that's what he was thinking. So that's a bad, like you said, it's the doorbell. No worries. Sorry. No, it's not the Because I like the door being open. I hope some more people come by talking really loudly. That's funny. This time I'll, I'll interview them. I'll bring the recorder over. How are you? That'd be good. I'll do that. Do you often interrupt people's classes by making noise? Apparently not now, eh? <laughs> so how do we fix it, Al? Well, Al Campbell's a bright guy. And he said, test many species and many different paradigms. So instead of just testing, say, the late magic example, um, let's take a look at, let's do like, what we want to call a task analysis. Let's take a look at the late magic example and say, what does it have? It's got a rotation interval. It's got very few alternatives. The animal has to remember one thing. Well, let's get a bunch of tasks that have those characteristics to them, right? And then let's test different species on those tasks. And if we find a similar pattern of differences in many different tests, so exactly unlike Bitterman, Bitterman's like, do the same thing over and over and over. I was like, no, do a whole bunch of different things and see if you see a pattern. It's unlikely that motivational differences are always the culprit if I do 25 different kinds of experiments and they all come up in the same direction. Right? It's just unlikely. Do you see the logic of Camel's approach? Like he said, error cancels. This is like why you look at you know, right now we're all probably very interested in the U.S. election, and you follow the polls, and you know that because of Obama, apparently he didn't even show up for the last debate. He was looking. He only he didn't look at his watch like George uh, Bush did a few years ago, but he did like just sort of stand there, like sitting there thinking, "I don't have to do anything because this guy's an idiot. I'm just going to win." And apparently, that's not how you win debates. Um, so we see polls, and we see that uh, Vic Romney is gaining, but you can't look at one poll. You have to look at the pattern in the polls. Because one poll is going to overestimate Romney, one poll is going to un underestimate, right? But if you look at all of them, the error should cancel. It's the same kind of idea. That's why you never look at one poll. There are certain things you can always tell who's losing an election, losing a campaign, is when they just they, they, they look at one poll, and when they say things like, to a crowd. Who here's actually been polled? They've never called me. Those are the meeting cries of the loser. <laughs> so keep that in mind. But if we look at all the polls, we can see there's a trend that uh, Romney went up. Because error kind of cancels, right? So the same kind of idea here. Error cancels. 
So look at, and also, don't just look at matching the sample, for example, or even just animal learning in a vacuum. Um, well, in a vacuum it's bad because the animals can't breathe and they die. Uh, don't just look at it on its own. Look at it in in the light of, of, of life history and biology, neuroscience, and psychology. In other words, oh look, we're a life science. Um, ask what sort of differences should have evolved between different species. So take a look at what's, what, what's problems they're solving to stay alive, and then say, I bet these guys would be good at this. That's the kind of question you should be asking. And believe me, in, when this paper came out in 1987, this was a crazy radical idea in psychology. And one of the crazy radical people that was doing work like this was me. We were about, there were probably about 50 of us in the world that were actually taking this approach. And now it's what everybody does. Or at least pays lip service to it. Ah, that's not making me special enough because I went to graduate school to write personal. But there's a very small number of us. And Al Campbell was, was, was pissed off at everybody else. It was funny. I was at a conference. First time I uh, went to a big time conference, my PhD supervisor sends me to this conference. He's one of the people there. And um, I'm kind of excited because I've never met the guy and I'm not used to yet meeting these famous scientists yet. And so I go to this thing and it's fun and all this, and he's talking to me before we had breakfast together, and I'm telling him how much I like this paper and whatever. And a guy gets up and gives, I don't say his name because I think it's embarrassing that he would say such a thing. He said, I really like the approach taken by you and McPhail. And Al Campbell yells across the room, hey, Broadbeck, there's one in every crowd, eh? <laughs> and I'm like, I, I don't know yes. It's pretty funny. But it's the right, it's, it's now what people do. It's now the, the approach that most people take. Here's a crazy idea. Let's predict in advance what would happen instead of saying, I wonder if French can do this. Which is just this, you know, scientifically, I wonder if rats can do it, is just this far from will it blend. <laughs> right? Because, I mean, it's like, I wonder what will happen if I do this. It's not really, I mean, it's, it's demonstration, it's not experimentation. My PhD supervisor, Sarah Shuttleworth, always said she called that the, um, she call, and she calls it the anthropocentric approach. I wonder if animals can do what people can do. Right? It's all it is. And she said it's, it's a program of demonstration instead of a program of prediction, which is what science should do. Which I thought was a very um, bold thing to say. But she's right. And it turns out 20 odd years later, she said that in 1993. 25 years later, she wins awards and stuff like that. So good on her. So what a crazy idea. We'll predict what species would be different from which other species. So remember the food storing story that I told you guys about? We predicted those things in advance. And we predicted them based on hippocampal volume, for example. We predicted them based on life history. They, when they store food, they have to recover or they die. We predicted it... Uh, and that they don't migrate, they actually stay around. So remembering where stuff is is something that's so important because if you don't, you die. So we made those predictions. So that, that is a, it's a good story that way. Uh, brown-headed cowbirds are great. Cowbirds are an interesting species because what they do, 
thinks it said species. Cowbirds um, are nest parasites. They nest what? Parasites. Uh-huh. Yeah, so what they do is they don't, they don't make their own nests. What female cowbirds do is they fly around and they wait till a female has laid some eggs in a nest and then of another species, and then they lay some of their eggs in that female's nest while the other female's gone. And then they fly away, and then it's like the other female, the other species actually raises the young as their own. I guess, I don't know, these house sparrows are like, this is a really ugly looking sparrow. So they're nest parasites. Now, if you're a nest parasite, you better know where all the nests are. Right? And you better know when. So first you have to know where they all are, because you also have to check them all out. You have to fly around every day going, any eggs in it, any eggs in it, any eggs in it. Where were there eggs yesterday? So you've got to compare yesterday to today and a spatial location. That's a pretty, that's a lot of learning. That's if you're a male, a female. The males have to do this. No, males just are sperm carriers. That's all they have to do. They mate with a female and go on their way. But the females have to know all this stuff. So females should be better at memory, especially spatial memory, than males, shouldn't they? In the cowbirds. And they are. And in fact, there are different species of cowbirds. There are some that only specialize in one, being a parasite to one species, and some that specialize in up to 216 species, parasitizing 216 kinds of other birds. Um, you might guess, by the way, that the most recent one to evolve is the one that's more of a generalist, and that's true. We can look at the file and the molecular clock. It's really neat, the whole story. Where does the sex difference show up to be the biggest? In the one that has that, 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 that parasitizes the most kinds of nests. It has to remember where, two, where many, many more nests are. So what is that difference between males and females, with females having better spatial ability and a bigger hippocampus show up, is the one that's that parasitizes more than the one that parasitizes less. Nice story. You know about voles? They talk about the, did they talk about the voles in the book? No way. Eh? Okay, there's different voles. Voles are little um, rodents. They're about that big. Okay? And they weigh about 40 grams, and they'll take your face off. They're really nasty little animals. Um... Like, I don't know, you ever pick up a mouse, like an actual, well, not, not a lab mouse, but a mouse like in your house, walking in your pocket, <laughs> right? They're not vicious. They're not pleasant, but they're not vicious. A vole, you pick them up, you have to wear chainmail gloves if you're a lab. Which is kind of cool, because you get chainmail. Um, but they're, they're butcher's gloves, they're the kinds they, they wear. Or they wear, and they use tongs to pick them up. I'm serious, because like they're just vicious little bugs. So there are different kinds of voles, and I might have this backwards, but I'm pretty sure the pine vole uh, is monogamous. One male with one female. That's the pine vole. The meadow vole this sounds like something from a bad kid's kid story, doesn't it? And then the meadow voles, except this part wouldn't be in a kid's story, are polygamous. One male and many females. It'd be a really weird kid story. It's the kind of kid stories I told you when you were young. Um, 
So the meadow vole has one too many, like, and I think on average about four different females. And he had, they actually have different dens, right? Little dens they live in. It's like any hamster, really. Nobody ever seen any hamster? Okay, so Sophie and me. Um, so what happens here is, basically the male has to provide food for four little families he's raising. Right? He's kind of like Don Draper. He's leading more than one life. Only one madman proud today. Uh, so, and he's also going to defend all those too. So, because the female, when she's going to have babies, like she can't go out and do a whole lot of foraging. She's got little tiny, completely helpless young. So she sits there nursing most of the day with these little tiny pups. Because a bull's this big. The pups got to be. They've got to be like the size of head of a freaking screw. I'm glad I had this available. <laughs> they're going to be very small. So they're a little suckling all day, so they can't, she can't walk around with them attached to her. He's got to bring food. He's also got to like, defend him. So where are we going to see a male-female sex difference in spatial memory in the metal vault, not the pine vault? And in fact, that's exactly the case. We see a hippocampal difference male to female, so it goes the opposite way in the cover. But we also see uh, spatial memory difference. Most of that work was actually done by the author, one of the authors of our book, Steve Galvin. Um, who's an anthropologist. It's interesting. He's an anthropologist. He got interested in all this stuff. And then he, I remember him, he came to our lab at EFT and talked to us, uh, gave us a talk, and he said, you know, people were wondering why he was ordering animals and getting cages and getting mazes built. So it's kind of funny. But yeah, so that's a great, another great story. Again, we would predict this. See, the general, the original idea is about general process learning assumes that all species are the same. That's how you put potentialities, and obviously part of that. Right? Um, from an evolutionary perspective, this is actually just silly. I, I mentioned um, in my PhD thesis, it says, Asking if species X can do what species Y does is kind of like asking why humans can't fly by flapping their arms. Right? It really is. Why can't you perfectly learn a song and be pitch perfect all the time like a chickadee? Well, why can't you flap your wings and fly? That's a stupid question. Are there things we should yeah, we should all be class of permission, of course. You know, moment to moment predict the future, hell yeah. And every animal ever tested does that. There are some general process things, yeah. But why? People get all excited about ape language learning. And I think it's neat, believe me. I've seen, I still don't think I'd buy it, but I've seen this thing where the apes are doing this. A lot of this is people going, oh, you see what Coco is saying. No, I think Coco's just playing with her hand. But they're actually doing the science. I'm not denying they're doing the science, you know. But so? Ever need. Yeah, and like I honestly don't find it that compelling. And I don't find it compelling because even if Coco can learn sign language, who invented sign language? Oh, then it'd be the humans, right? It's not like apes are out there in the wild going, oh, no, if we could only develop some sort of gestural language. <laughs> it's not the way it works. Also, you should never teach apes language because that ends up to a planet of the apes. We know. <laughs> We've seen from movies. We've seen from two reboots. We know what happens. So, that's why we should do that as well. 
so you have to watch out for that. It's a madhouse! <laughs> it's the greatest part of that movie, right? You see the first, the original Charlton Heston where he's overacting at a level that's just unreal? And he's in the thing and the apes are spraying the humans with water. And he's going, it's a madhouse! <laughs> My son was doing that for a while. Because I think he saw me do it. He's like, it's a madhouse. <laughs> All right, we talked about modularity already once before, right? We talked about perception. Um, learning is a modular thing. We see pretty clearly that module, a module for space. Okay? So when you, and that, 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 that spatial module, in fact, is geometric. You are learning with geometry. You are learning, excuse me, where stuff is in relation to other stuff based on vector math, really. Okay? So really, it's all about geometry. That's what you're learning. With a module that does geometry. I've had a couple students work on uh, this stuff with me over the years on geometric module humans. We have a module for time. And by the way, that's not just us, that's other animals too. I mean, it's pretty common. If you're moving through space, you better probably have a space, a space module. And again, look what happens in these animals that are that, 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 that rely on space more than others, right? On, say, chickadees or on meadow voles or brevet cupboards. We see differences. The spatial module is so important, you get selection for it. It's like an organ. That's the idea of a cognitive module. We almost certainly have a module for time. And again, we aren't the only animal with this. <coughs> Okay, so time, the passage of time, the short-term timing is something that we, as humans, but other animals as well, are pretty good at. We have an internal clock that does this for us. We can read the stadium. We know enough about the timing module that we can actually explain now about 99.99% of the variance in timing in most species. Like we know how this thing works. Do we know how it works in physiology? No. But we can actually model it well enough that we can say we know how it works and the ability to control variables are, etc. So time is another. We probably have a module for number. Um, so again, this isn't just us, okay? This is different species. This is not just us. Um, this is the ability to, to, to keep track of and count, of number to count uh, and then do operations with number. Right? No one invented, this is interesting, no one invented, think about this, no one invented space, no one invented time, no one invented number. We discovered these things, right? You don't invent math. You discover math. You invent the light bulb. You don't invent a property of the universe. Numbers are a property of the universe. These are all properties of the universe that we respond to. So, when will new modules evolve? Because, I mean, we've got these modules, these are probably three pretty basic ones we use for learning. Right? They're pretty basic, and we use them for learning. 
Well, when will new ones evolve? Well, new ones will evolve when present ones won't solve the problems the animals face with. This is a Dave Sherry and Dan Schachter's 1987 paper, The Evolution of Multiple Memory Systems. Uh, killer paper, like really uh, a fun read, actually. And this, art, this article says that, look, usually these kind of things can take care of any problem. It's when something new shows up, and the example they use there is birdsong. Right? So birds have to learn birds have to learn how to sing their own song. You might think, well, wouldn't it be easier to just stamp that in biologically? Just uh, what if there's sort of drift over time? What if there's a mistake made in the copying of the DNA? Then you can't pass your genes on at all. So it makes more sense to be able to adjust it a little bit on the fly over time. So it makes sense then that animals, like chickadees, for example, have a song, right? You know, that's that's song. It's chickadee song. So they should be able to learn that, and there should be some differences between certain populations. The thing is, they should learn it very quickly and remember it for life. Does any of other of our learning systems, us being any animal, do we have another learning system where we learn things perfectly forever? Well, the closest thing you can think of is, is this human language, really. Right? Um, but we, you know, as the common ancestor of the humans and the, and the dinosaurs, where birds come from, is a long freaking time ago. So it's unlikely that they're even related to those two things. But the important thing to know is that birds wouldn't have had that. They need it for communication. They develop a new system for birdsong, or you want to call it an evolution. Um, now, not all birds will learn song that way. Guys talk about cowbirds. Cowboys don't. Cowboys actually are born genetically programmed with their song. You know why? Because if they use, if they learn any song, they learn the song of whoever they were was raising them, unbeknownst to them. Right. So there are birds that do have a pro, pre-programmed song, but not very many. So birds will develop a new. Oh, sorry. So, so the bird song system is a, basically very few trials, uh, and it lasts forever, and it doesn't change much. No other learning system that we have does that. Classical or conditioning, opera conditioning won't do that. That's when something new should show up. So you can talk about human language the same way. There is something special about language. We also probably have face recognition module. Um, first of all, we know that there are, there are cases where people get a bump on the head or a stroke and they can't recognize faces anymore. But they can recognize everything else. In that case, it's pretty clear that something special has happened, that you know, they've just gone after some face system. Uh, but secondly, um, just thinking about this evolutionarily, we are such a social species that me recognizing who people are and knowing who you know, owes me 10 bucks and doesn't owe me 10 bucks, who I owe 10 bucks to, that's a pretty important thing for my fitness. So this is something probably a new module, it's probably been a couple in humans, probably language and probably face recognition. Right. Other primates probably have the face recognition one as well. A lot of other primates, nothing else would have the language. Right. Is it the case that sort of self-awareness, we talked about consciousness, maybe that is a separate module. I'm not sure. 
condenser going right down back here. It's freezing back behind the screen. There's a cold front back here. There's icicles developing. Some walruses back there now. It's a whole micro environment. Um, so this is the notion that they may show up. Like I said, I think we have a couple special ones. A special language one is clearly a special one just for us. The face one, a little. Uh, probably us and other primates. We know that from Dave Parrott's work you've seen. All right, questions about this stuff? All right, so we'll stop that. Now, does anybody have any questions? podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. 
Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.